The Bible reading is from John chapter 21, verses 15 to 25, on page 1090 of the Pew Bibles. John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. In view of the announcement which John has just made, I thought it appropriate that before we have our normal prayers of intercession, we uh, thank God for uh, what we have just learned. So let us pray. Lord, we thank you that the Burke family have been with us for one year. We thank you for Damien and Sarah and Hannah and Roisin and Lydia and Stephen. We thank you for Damien's ministry and the way we, our hearts have been enriched through his service here. We thank you for the presence of the family and how they have enriched our congregational life. And we pray for them, and we pray for the congregation of Drogheda, to which they will go in a few months. Lord, prepare them for the challenges and the blessings which they will meet, and prepare Drogheda too. 
and prepare us and, and Frank and Claire for their return here in September in your will. And in the meantime, continue your gracious work as together Burks and Bloomfield we seek to worship you and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Damien didn't know I was going to do that. In, in the Herald uh, that you may have, there's reference to Eric Borland, a minister who this week celebrated his 100th birthday. Uh, I know Eric, and he's a committed pastor with a warm evangelical heart. And he was asked, were, were there any significant things that he could point to in his long ministry? And he said this, seeing young people make their profession of faith, it always made me feel very humble that I should be used in that way, but very happy about it too. And this led me to think about those who have influenced me in my not-so-long life. And perhaps you have such people. Not perhaps. You do have such people too. And let's join together in thanking God for them. Lord, we acknowledge that it is by your grace that we are what we are. We owe everything to your boundless love and your mercy, which cannot be measured. And so we praise your wonderful name. But we recognize that you have used men and women down the years to influence us, to influence us in our choices and to help us in the way the way, your way, and we thank you for them. We thank you for influences at home, in school, in church, for parents and grandparents and family members who showed us Jesus, for teachers at school and Sunday school, for youth leaders, and for all who set such a shining example that we were led to, to follow them and through them to follow Jesus. For ministers and others who taught us the truth, we thank you, Lord. For those friends and colleagues who walked with us through our teenage and later years, who struggled with us, as together we face new challenges and temptations and who learned with us how to walk with the Savior. Lord, we thank you for those who showed us your faithfulness in the midst of testing. Some suffered at the hands of others and never retaliated. Some endured mockery and slander were provoked, but never uttered an unkind word. 
Some suffered crises of health or circumstance. Their quiet response, their simple yet profound faith has been a strength and inspiration to us. Thank you for those whose lives of humility, devotion, and commitment have challenged us. For those who thought nothing of this world's goods or glory and forsook all to follow you on the foreign field or the difficult outpost. Thank you, Lord. For those who now rest from their labors and for those who are still with us, we look forward to joining with the saints of glory on that day. And we would pray you for those drawing near the end of life's pilgrimage. In silence, we focus on individuals and pray for those still in our midst. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the word confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia. Thou wast their rock, their fortress and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness, their one true light. Alleluia. O oh, may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old, and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Alleluia. O oh, blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine, yet all are one in thee, for all are thine. Alleluia. And when the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song, and hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. Alleluia. The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors cometh rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise, the blessed. Alleluia. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. Alleluia. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, streams in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Amen. Please turn to page 1091, where you'll find John chapter 21, and 
This morning we close our sermon series in the book of John, and can I encourage you to keep reading this great gospel that we have uh, for us today. Let me just pray for us as we come to hear God's word. Father, we thank you for John's gospel. We thank you for it being recorded and given to us today as your word. And we pray as we come to this final installment of John chapter 21. Father, we need your spirit as we meditate on it. We need your help as we try to apply this to our lives. And we need your grace as well. Father, be with us this morning, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. John arrives home from evening church. He puts on the kettle for a cup of tea. He takes his favorite mug from the press, and he is very sad. In fact, he's very concerned with thoughts of what does he go from here or where does he go from here. You see, John's been a Christian for many years. He feels his Christian life is in a kind of cruise control mode. His heart's not really in it anymore. Yet for anyone looking on, he seems to be doing well. And as he pours his tea and sits down, he wonders how can he re-engage his heart with the Lord. He deep down wants to. He wants to love and follow his Savior, but not with a cold, undivided heart. Or take Jackie. She lives her life with a relentless sense of failure as a Christian. She's constantly falling and letting down God in her work, her family life, her sinful patterns and habits have created this. She's aware that she doesn't love God and others like she should. But again, deep down, her desire is to serve him and to love him and know him better. But she doesn't want to be a hypocrite either. This morning, the likes of John and Jackie, what would you say to them? How would you encourage them? Would you tell them it doesn't matter? You should just keep on doing the same things. You're not that bad. What would you say to them? I wonder this morning, does God's word have anything to say? Because this morning we come to John chapter 21, a passage that has much to say to the likes of John or Jackie and to us here this morning about Jesus' challenging question and encouragement to Peter, who struggled to love and failed very badly. And I want to look at these verses under the following points this morning. And the first one is this. We're back at the fire. Did you notice that in verse 15? In John 21, the disciples have gone from Jerusalem to Galilee because Jesus told them he would meet them there. While waiting for Jesus, they've gone fishing, which you would have seen if you were here last week, and they caught nothing for the night's work. That was until this man appeared, this Jesus, in verses, verse 6 of chapter 21. He told them to cast their net over to the other side of the boat, and they land this huge, enormous catch of fish. Verse 9 says, when they landed they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus says to him, come, have breakfast. And they ate together around the charcoal fire. The last time Peter was around a fire in John's gospel was when Jesus was arrested. Peter had followed and ended up in the courtyard of the high priest's house. And in John chapter 18, verse 18, it says this, it was cold and the servants and the officials were round a fire to keep themselves warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Peter that night around that fire denied knowing or denied even being with Jesus three times. And this is the same Peter 
that once wholeheartedly said to Jesus and to the other disciples, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And yet that night around the fire in the courtyard, Peter disowned Jesus. He denied him, failed and sinned. That night around the fire was the last time Peter was to see Jesus before he died on the cross. How did he feel? Was there regret, sorrow, disappointment, even despair in his life that night? Did Peter think that this was a relationship that was too damaged, too gone beyond repair? The Bible tells us that that night Peter went out and he wept bitterly. But now fast forward to John 21. Jesus has died. He has risen from the dead. Jesus is going back to the Father in heaven and has already met with his disciples three times. But the risen Lord Jesus takes the initiative around the fire to restore and speak with Peter here in chapter 21. And this takes us to the second point this morning, which is this, the big question, verse 15 to 17. Jesus in verse 15 addresses Peter using his full first name. Do you see it there? And he uses this name because this is what he used when he first met Peter back in John chapter 1, verse 42. Let me read it out for you. It says this, Jesus looked at Peter and said to him, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Caiaphas, which means Peter. And here is Jesus post-resurrection. And it's as if he is taking Simon Peter back to the start again back to when they first met, and he addresses them using the name he first met with them, Simon, son of John. He could have easily said Peter, but instead he reminds him, Simon, son of John. Peter probably thinks, you called me this before. You said this to me when you first called me, Simon, son of John. And for a moment, let's imagine what sort of questions Jesus could ask Peter at this moment. Could he have said to him, Peter, why did you deny me? Why did you leave me high and dry when I most needed you, when you said that you would never fall away? What was going through your head, Peter? If you'd only prayed in the garden, Peter, maybe you wouldn't have been in this state. Maybe you wouldn't have denied me. You wouldn't have failed me. Were you afraid or just ashamed of me? These are the type of questions that Jesus could have asked Peter that day. But instead he comes and he says, Simon, son of John, and like a skilled physician, like a surgeon who cuts straight through to the precise problem. Jesus is like a seasoned barrister here because he asks a question that just opens the floodgates. And he says to him, Simon, son of John, verse 15, do you truly love me? Don Carson says the following about Jesus' question, that it is a question that probes to the depth of Peter's being. Do you truly love me, Peter? And then if you see it in there, it says, more than these. What's he talking about there? What is Jesus referring to when he says, more than these? The best way to understand it, I think, is to probably see Jesus asking Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples? This is most probable because of Peter's arrogance before. If they all fall away, I'll be with you. It's almost as if Peter said to him, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly better than them. I won't fall away from you, Peter, Jesus. I'll never fall. They might, but I won't. And Peter, in making that claim, was so self-absorbed, so self-exalting, and self-reliant on his own ability to walk with the Lord, and more than the other disciples. And it's not surprising then that Jesus says to him, Peter, do you truly love me more than these? Jesus is restoring Peter 
by addressing the heart of the problem by asking Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? If my wife asked me that, I'd be going, "Uh uh-oh, what's wrong? (laughs) Wouldn't you? It's one of those questions that puts you right on the spot, isn't it? And here is Jesus, the Son of God, saying to Peter, who has failed and denied him, Peter, do you truly love me? It's a searching question for Peter here, isn't it? And it's searching because of this, because in the lead up to Jesus' arrest and and death, Peter showed a love for his own knowledge over a love for Jesus and his knowledge. Do you remember how Jesus, Jesus told Peter and the other disciples he'd be arrested, he'd suffer and die and be raised to life? What did Peter think? No, no, I know best. My knowledge is better than yours, Jesus. I know what is to come. And he took him aside and rebuked Jesus. Or again in the courtyard, if we go back there, Peter showed a greater fear of people against a love for Jesus. Maybe he loved people more than Jesus in that moment and didn't want the disapproval or to be seen with this Galilean. So Jesus' question, do you love me, is a searching question for Peter but it's also a searching question for you and I this morning. If Christ were to ask you this morning, do you love me? What would be your response? For some of us, we would reply, not as much as I ought to, but yes, I do. The communion service words that we sometimes use have these, isn't it? Come to this table not because you are strong, but because you're weak. Come not because of any goodness of your own gives you a right to come, but because you need mercy and help. Come because you love the Lord a little and would love to love him more. And some of us are like that. If Jesus were to ask us, we would say, I do, yes, but I would love to know you more. And the Christian life and discipleship is about growing in our love for Christ through the means of grace that he gives us, the word, prayer, both individually in court, meeting together, the Lord's Supper, acting upon the leading and guiding of God's Spirit and Word. And in the words of William Cowper, he puts it like this, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint, yet I love you and adore. Oh, for grace to love you more. And that is for some of us. We love the Lord, and we would love to love Him more. How do you increase that love? By using His means of grace. For some of us here this morning, if we were asked this question, do you love me, we would, if we were honest, we would reply, you know what, my love has gone cold. It has slowly withered away. It blossomed for a time, but has slowly died. Sinful patterns, habits have put cold water on the love that I had for Jesus. Others of us here this morning, if Jesus were to ask us that question, we would say, do you love me? we would say other things and other people have taken greater priority and commitment in our lives and hearts and have crowded out our love for Jesus. Our work life has dominated. It has become our love. It has given our heart to it. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's the the desire to be married, the desire to have someone special in your life and you've given your life over to it. Perhaps it's your career Ah, the hours, you don't realize the hours I do. Maybe it's your leisure and your hobbies. Your kids have dominated and they've taken your heart away from following Christ. Maybe it's your home, lovely new kitchen, the redevelopments you're thinking of. 
the pursuit of retirement goals. I can't wait till I'm finished, and then I'll give my heart to that. And perhaps we try to balance both the love for these things and Christ, but that's not the way it works. You can't serve two masters. You can't give your heart to both. Others here this morning have no experience or idea of what I'm talking about when I mention a love for God. My uncle in England is dying at the moment, and somebody said to him, do you know Jesus loves you? He goes, what? Who is this lad? And that's what it's like for some of us, that we have no idea of the idea of Jesus loving us, in turn of loving him. And can I encourage you, if you're in that boat, if you're thinking, what's he on about this morning? Investigate it. Find out for yourself. A love for God means giving him control. New heart he gives, new desires that honor God by giving our will and affections and lives to him. The question is, do you love me? And the the thing you need to ask is this, what is the remedy if our hearts are cold, if other things have taken the priority? What is the remedy to it? It is to repent. It is to say and commit, God, I'm giving you that. I'm confessing it as something that has captivated my heart and taken me away from you. But you also need a higher loyalty and allegiance, a first love experience again. Listen to the words of J.C. Royal when he says this, the more we realize that Christ has suffered for us and paid our debt to God and that we are washed and justified through his blood, the more we shall love him for having loved us and given himself to us. Yes, we must repent, but you need a higher allegiance, a first love experience where it captivates and motivates your heart. There has to be a higher affection, a a love that draws you to Jesus, that puts all other things in their place, proper and right. If it's not there, then eventually everything turns itself upside down and you will pursue other things. Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan, wrote a lovely uh, paper on the religious affections, and he writes this, and stick with it. He says, from a vigorous, affectionate, and fervent love to God will necessarily arise other religious affections. Hence will arise an intense hatred and abhorrence of sin, fear of sin, and a dread of God's displeasure, gratitude to God for for his good pleasure, gratitude to God for his goodness, complacency and joy in God, when God is graciously and sensibly present, and grief when he's absent, and a joyful hope when a future enjoyment of God is expected, and fervent zeal for the glory of God. In all his archaic language, it means this. If you have a love for God, if you treasure and revere him, arises out of that are other desires, affections, hatred of sin, joy in God, hope, desire to see God glorified in your life and in your church. And if you're here this morning and you have a desire to love God more, if you have a desire for things to be put right, can I encourage you that even if those desires are small, even if they're like an ember that is burning out, act upon them. By faith, take that trust. They are there, be encouraged and act upon them, just like John You wouldn't say to John, give it up. You'd say, John, act upon those little desires you have, those burning embers that are still there, act upon them. Because to be a disciple of the Lord means there is a love for him. A true Christian is one that has a love for Christ. And when we speak of love, it's more than a feeling. Love moves the desires, the will, the actions of a person. It even manifests itself in other things. 
we love because he first loved us. There's no neutral ground. J.C. Ryle is right when he says this, there is no love where there, there is no life where there is no love. And how does Peter respond to this Jesus' probing question? Do you see it in verses 15, 16, and 17? He says to them, you know, you know, you know everything. This had to be learned by Peter, didn't it? Peter, throughout his life, he showed great statements of faith. You're the Christ, the Son of God. Other times, he thought he knew best. But here in verse 21, verse 17, we see a different Peter, a humbled Peter, a Peter whose reliance is not on himself, a Peter who learned the hard way that Jesus knows everything, everything, all things, especially the condition of his heart. And as we ponder this morning, do you love me? The fact is, Jesus knows everything. Take to heart this biblical principle that Jesus knows your heart condition before him. You may hide it from others. He knows your situation, your life circumstances laid bare, past, present, and future before the risen Jesus. He knows everything. And what a lovely statement to say of Peter. Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know everything. What a comfort to take this morning that he knows everything. And then Peter is given a task. Do you see it? Once Je- verses 15 and 17. Once Jesus has addressed Peter's heart condition, he then graciously commissions Peter for a task. Peter would become one of the most prominent leaders in the early church. And here in these verses, Jesus tells the one who denied him, the one who said, I don't know who he is, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and feed my sheep. What an encouragement to Jackie and John, that even though we fail and we are sinful people, God gives us purpose. He gives us services to do. Do you notice the language used by Jesus when he commissions Peter here again? Jesus says to him, my lambs, my sheep, my church, my people. God's people are his You belong to Jesus. He is the one who gives his life for the purchase of your souls and the people of God. And that's why he says here to Peter, these are my lambs, my sheep. It's vital to remember for Peter and those for us in leadership in God's church, or those even who aspire to being in leadership. It's not our church. This doesn't belong to us, but rather it is the Lord's people. It is his bride, his church, his sheep, and his lambs. And yet, despite all that, because God loved God's love, he entrusts Peter with the task of feeding and caring for his people, the lambs and the sheep. And even though we don't have apostles or apostolic roles today in the church, we do have roles of ministries, both to elders and particularly to pastors and teachers, to take one example. They are charged and commissioned and responsible for feeding the lambs, the people, for caring for them. That is why Paul in Acts Acts to the Ephesian elder says, keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which God the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Did you? So when you come into membership, this is part of it, that you're coming under the oversight of the elders that has been entrusted by God. You're his people. You're his lambs, his flock. 
And then the beauty of this is that Peter, who denied Jesus, would later write to elders himself in 1 Peter, and he wrote this, to the elders among you, I appeal as fellow elders, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving in a particular way. Later on, it says, be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade. These verses speak of the God-given roles and responsibilities given to leaders of God's church. Here is Peter, the denier, the one who gave up on Jesus, being commissioned to feed God's lambs and sheep, and that kind of role is still there, even though they're not apostles. But there's a wider principle here, and that is a love for Jesus, which is brought about by the gospel, that God graciously gives all tasks to do. So every follower of Jesus is given the task of service to do. It's how Ephesians puts it. Do you remember that famous verse? It is by grace that you have been saved. True faith, it is not of yourself. It is the gift of God so no one can boast. And then we forget sometimes verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is what God is doing. He takes a denier, a failure, a sinner. He asks him, do you love me? He restores him by commissioning him to look after his sheep. And it is the same for every Christian. You're given a task to do good works prepared in advance for you to do. Tomorrow, those works could be bringing up your kids. They could be going into that mundane job that absolutely bores you to tears. It could be looking after your wife or your husband. It could be being part of God's church, sharing Jesus with others. All good works prepared in advance for us to do as we love Jesus. How good is God to Peter here? to restore him, to commission him. How good is God to you and I that he not only takes sinners, but he forgives us, restores us, and then commissions us to do good works in his name. And lastly, our point this morning is this. Follow me. Don't be distracted. Verses 18 to 23. Do you ever get distracted at work or school or even in college? or when you're driving or talking with someone or on your mobile phone or tablet or TV, internet or music, ask my wife, she said, you're not listening to me. I'm distracted, whether it's on a phone, whether it's other things, and we get so easily distracted. And here in verses 18 to 23, Peter, who has been restored, commissioned by Jesus, and then within moments of it, he gets distracted. How? Have a look at it. Verse 18, Jesus tells Peter what his future will be. He's going to be crucified. It is more than likely that Peter was martyred in the early 60s. And Jesus gives him a future picture. You'll go where you will not want to go, Peter. Your arms will be stretched out. But Jesus' words to Peter, despite what the future is, is verse, end of verse 19, he says to him, follow me, Peter. And verse 21 and 20, straight away, Peter gets distracted by asking Jesus what's going to happen with him. And Jesus, very straight with Peter, says, verse 22, what's that to you, Peter? Mind your own business. Follow me. The point is this, for Peter and for you and I this morning, it is easy to get distracted in the Christian life, but the call is to follow Jesus. The Christian life is a lifelong journey. It will mean denying self, suffering. It will mean doing those good works and putting Jesus and others first. And one of the greatest challenges to all of us will be to follow him for the rest of our days. 
the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 shows people who followed Christ. John Stott died at the age of 90. He followed Christ all his life, gave up bishop's role in order so he could preach and continue preaching the gospel. What about you and I this morning? Following Christ will mean suffering, dying to self. There will be a cost, but Jesus says to, the, to us, to each of us this day, like Peter, you must follow me. This morning, we see Jesus restoring a sinner. We see Jesus commissioning a sinner, and we see Jesus reminding sinners, follow me. Folks, if Jesus were to ask you this morning, do you love me? Where do you stand with him? Because he stands there like he did with Peter to restore you, to commission you, and to remind you again, do not get distracted. Keep following him. You must follow me. Let us pray. Father, as we come and respond to your word, Father, we're not the best ones to evaluate where our heart is with you. But we come to you as the one who we've been learning about in Revelation that searches heart and mind. And Father, this morning, search our hearts and mind. Be gracious to us as you ask us, do you love me? Father, thank you that you restored Peter by getting to the heart of the problem. And Father, we confess this morning that so many things take our heart away from you, that we've given them over, that we've pursued things, that we desire things that we know will take us from him. And Father, help us to see in this life of restoration of Peter that you restore, that you not just restore, but you give purpose and commission. And you've called each of us to good works prepared in advance to do for your glory. But also you remind us, keep following me. You must follow me. Lord, save us from distraction. Save us from love of other things. So that, Lord, we may revere and love this Jesus that we've been learning about in John's gospel. Help us, in the words of Hebrews, to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, help us to fix our eyes on him and to follow him, we pray. And we confess our sin and we bring it before you this morning, knowing that you're a gracious, restoring, commissioning and telling us to follow you this day. Lord, help us, we ask, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.